So if you will look on your sheet here today, I'll read the question out loud, and then as usual, we will all read the answer together. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So, as you can see here, today's topic of discussion, or as we've been calling them catechisms, which are basically just essential teachings, um, we're going to be talking about the adoption, not necessarily uh, of... You know, kids who are in need of a parent, the orphans in a in foster care or an orphanage. We're not talking about that kind of adoption. We're talking about adoption as part of salvation. Um, and just off the top of your heads, from perhaps things you've learned about adoption, whether in regards to children in orphanages and foster care, or things that you've learned concerning our adoption from a heavenly father, what are some things in scripture that you can think of that kind of describe why in the world we are considered to be adopted? Like, why does the Bible teach us about adoption? Because there's a lot of stuff in scripture that uses a human picture to describe a heavenly reality. So why in the world is adoption a human picture describing this heavenly reality between us and God? Does anybody have any... Thoughts about that? Well, it's not a biological yeah. thing. You're being adopted in the case of God. Mm-hmm. Adopted in your family, obviously. Yeah. But you get the same <clears throat> rights mm-hmm. as if you were by a physical Right. You're treated as a child. You're entered into the will, per se. <laughs> you have a right to the inheritance of your, of your parents, or in this case, your Heavenly Father. What else? I guess I was thinking kind of that because we are born sinners, we're kind of sons of disobedience, or we're born with a sin nature, and that is not like God at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and that's a good point you bring up too, and I wasn't planning on talking about this, but in order to be adopted into a family, it means you have nothing to do with your parents prior to your adoption. You had nothing to do with your new family. You were completely separated from that new family that you're adopted into. And this, these parents decide, this person has a need, I'm going to bring them into my family which is an image of what God does. We have nothing to do with God prior to our adoption. We are not part of his family. We have no rights to um, his inheritance. We have no relation to him whatsoever. And God sees us and says, that person needs needs a good father. And he adopts us into his family, making, giving us just in that moment as though we'd always been his child. We're given a new name, we're given an inheritance, we're treated like a real child, as though that were always our parent. Anything else somebody would like to say? Add. And you've said it, but it's, it's an operation of God, it's His choice. Right. 
we don't choose him, he chooses us. Yeah. Is at least what starts it. Yeah. And actively we do end up choosing him, but only as he leads us. And I was just turned here to John chapter 3 that kind of talks about this a little bit, which isn't in your notes. If you'd like to write down these verses, you can write these notes down. Um, but Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, which is, he was a... Um, a Pharisee who was kind of who he was an inquisitive Pharisee. Most of the Pharisees, when they came to talk to Jesus, they were trying to trip him up. But Phar- but this Nicodemus was actually inquisitive. He was in- intrigued in this per- in this new guy, this new new guy in town, and his teachings. He wasn't sure that this was the Messiah, but he had some interesting teachings. So Nicodemus was intrigued, and he came to talk to him. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, "Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you are born again." You cannot see the kingdom of God. So right there we're talking about, you know, you said that we don't, it's not like a genetic makeup thing. But like I had mentioned before, if once we're adopted, it's as though we were always in his family. That's how he treats us. And he says, you have to be, that's why it's called being born again. Because we're, we start in this fallen world, just like you were talking about, full of sin. Nothing to do with God, no resemblance to God whatsoever. So we need a new birth. We need to be born differently. And Jesus goes on to say, Most assuredly, I say to you, and this is verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's why we need, okay, so the fleshly, the water birth, brings us physical life. Spiritual birth gives us eternal life. Spiritual life quickens us. But then, to Kirk's point, down a little further, let's see here. Let's see if we can find it real quick. Um, Let's see here. Where can I find this? It should be right here. Who took this verse out of the scriptures? Oh, verse 8. The wind, and this is talking about the spirit, in the Greek, the word for spirit is the word pneuma, which also means wind. It means wind and spirit, and often that is the idea behind that is used interchangeably. So he says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. I mean, that's a very mystical verse, but it's kind of giving us a feel for the fact that, you know what, we, we are not in control of how the Spirit moves. You and I are not in control of when a person is going to see their need for this new birth. You know, and that's one of the things that I have to be careful of as a preacher. You know, I'm, you know I try to construct things like in a way that if I say it this way, then they'll really get it and it'll cause life change and all these types of things. But I have to be careful about that because... It's the spirit that moves and really brings the effectual change. I can say things with, with deep clarity and profundity, and I can make it really interesting through all these uh, riveting illustrations, but all is in vain if the spirit is not opening people's spirit, minds, hearts. And when he opens your spirit and when he opens your mind, then you see it. And this is how we're born again. And this is how we're born in the spirit. This is not man's doing. This is God's doing. We, are, we do not force ourselves into a spiritual birth. God brings it to us. We receive it. So I, I want to show us a little bit about this adoption. Does anybody else have anything else to say?
somebody itching to say something, and I was just rambling on and on and on. Okay. Now look at Psalm 90, verse 1. And these are just kind of introductory passages. They don't per se deal with adoption, but they're just introductory, giving, you know, profiling God in a sense, giving us a profile. Who wants to read Psalm 90, verse 1? Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Yeah, so here, when you think of adoption, one of the aspects of adoption is, you, okay, you get a new name, you get an inheritance, but you also get a dwelling place. You get home. And that's something that these foster kids or orphan kids, they long for. A place where they consider their home. And we find our home. We find our stability, our security, and our rest in the, in the adoption that God gives us. And He gives us a home. Eternally, yes. And we also get to abide the Bible. Talk. We could talk about a scriptural abiding for a long time. We get to just be with Him where He is, spiritually speaking. And then if you flip the page over to Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2, somebody could read that for us. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and Him I will trust. These are all, con- these are all concepts connected with finding a home, finding a good father, when perhaps we've only known bad ones. When we dwell in the secret place of the Most High, we shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That's talking about a place of protection, a place of security, like the wing of an eagle to her chicks. And I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge. He's a place that I can go to be safe. Because He brings me safety in my spirit and externally. But even when everything outside of us is falling apart, He comforts us. And he is my fortress, my God, and him I will trust. We can trust him because he's, he, if he's sovereign and he's in control of everything, then everything's for our good. And if we are his child, then we know that this parent of ours, this new good father, is not going to allow anything in our life that is not in some way, shape, and form for our good. And you can give me, well, this happened to me, or this happened to the, what about those children over there? What about this? I can't give you all the answers as to how, that, how in the world that could turn, be for good. I don't know all those answers, and I'm not supposed to have all those answers. None of us are. But if we are his child, then we know that as a good father, he is really protecting us, keeping us, maturing us, rearing us in everything that we go through. Sometimes rebuking us as a father, mother rebukes their child. 1 John chapter 2. Somebody would like to read verses 28 over to chapter 3, verse 3. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet
yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Okay, Tucker, I have a question for you. At home, do we have rules? Yeah? What kind of rules do we... Can you name a couple of rules or things that we expect at our home? Yeah, we're not supposed to be screaming and running around through the hallways when somebody's sleeping. Yeah, that's something we expect. Okay, we're not supposed to run in the house excessively. Yeah, no horse play. Yeah, in the house. So those are some good things. And does that, and not everybody has those rules. Don't tell Tucker this. <laughs> um, but we have rules in our house that are specific to our family lifestyle. We have a way of life that we try to impart to our children. And those are the rules of our house. Not everybody has those rules. You know, the Mendels did not have the exact same structure in their family when their kids were little that we have for our children as our kids are little. And we could say that for each family. Every family operates a little bit differently. Okay, And in this passage we're seeing here, if you, if you know that... He is righteous. You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. God has a way for his people to live. He has a way, a structure, and it's given to us in the word of God. And people who would call themselves a child of God will walk in his ways. Doesn't that mean we're perfect? No. In fact, um, somewhere in 1 John, I I wasn't planning on saying this, but... He says somewhere in this passage that, or in this, in this chapter, that I say these things to you so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with our Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, okay? Because Jesus paid for our sins, so we don't have to be condemned for them anymore. But, if we want to, what? 2-1. Two, 2-1. One. Two, one. My little children, thank you. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. How does that end, Kristen, since you're already looking at it? The righteous. Jesus was righteous for us, and his righteousness is applied to us when we are the child of God. And while we are expected to walk in his ways as his child, we are going to screw up sometimes. We are going to fail. We are going to fall. We are going to miss the mark still. But in those cases, yeah, Jesus' blood still applies to us. We are still forgiven. We are treated as a child, and sometimes children need swatted. <laughs> they need timeouts. They need rebuke. And God will rebuke us he will, because he loves us, and he wants us to walk in his ways because he has a structure for his people. And if we would like to be his child, we have to recognize the fact that there's a way, and we walk in it. Look at John, not First John, but John itself, John chapter 1. Does anybody have any questions about that? John 1, 11 to 13. So if somebody could read that for us. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name who were born, not of natural 
actual descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Okay, so, he's, so this is the beginning of John, an introductory statement, basically showing as, through the course of time, Jesus' own people rejected him. He was their Messiah. The prophecies were clear, and it was clear that Jesus was fulfilling these prophecies throughout his entire life and in his death. Any religious person who was studied <laughs> could see that Jesus, even in, even in how he was treated in the days of his death, he was fulfilling prophecy. But his people still rejected him. It says he came to his own. He was born as a Jew. He was the Jew's Messiah. But his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe on his name. How do you keep yourself away from being a child of God? You're like these people who rejected him. I don't want your ways. I don't want to believe in you. I want to walk in my own ways. Rather than submitting ourselves to him as our savior. As many as received him, admitted this is, this is God's Messiah. This is God's savior. The forgiver of sins. He gave those people the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name. Who were born, this goes back to John chapter 3, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Okay, Because remember, this is the Spirit's deal. He comes upon us, opens our eyes, draws us in. Not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. God wants to adopt you. Those whom he calls, he plans on adopting. Anybody have any question about that? Comment? Romans chapter 8, and we'll end with this chap in this passage. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Who'd like to read that for us? God didn't adopt you so that you could live your life in fear. Uh, Says it. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead and read it. Yeah. Go ahead. Says in addition to justification and freedom from condemnation, verse one: believers are taken into the family of God and are inwardly persuaded by the Spirit that they belong there. The cry of the believer, Abba, Father, the Aramaic word Abba was used by Jesus himself for God in Mark 14.36, indicates how vividly union with Christ was realized in the experience of the New Testament church. The cry is an expression of an assured awareness of sonship. The idea of adoption does not appear in the Old Testament legal system, and Paul seems to have borrowed this concept from Roman law 
filling it out with the biblical theology of God's fatherhood over his people. Yeah, and that's, a, and that's an interesting study too. If you try to find where God is considered a father in the Old Testament, there's only like, if I remember right, one or two passages. There's not a whole lot about the fatherhood of God in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it's everywhere. It just like explodes in this new, in a relatively new concept. A lot perpetuated, like you said, perhaps by the early church recognizing how Jesus cried out to God as Abba, Father, and taking that <clears throat> and running with that because Christ did teach that those who receive him are treated as brothers to Jesus. We are treated just like the siblings of Jesus Christ in, in the Father's eyes. So we have the, just as much right to call God the same thing that Jesus calls him. Does that make sense? Go ahead. Yeah. Kind of like the way that we think that we should be treated mm-hmm. when we mess up is with shame and lowly status. Yeah. But that's not how God loves us. Right. You know, He's the one, God is the one who, you know, the story of the prodigal son, the son who took advantage of his situation and ran away from home, spent an early inheritance. And then realized, oh wait, I have nothing left for the rest of my life. <laughs> Oops. Well, you know, then he starts working in a in a pig farm, feeding the ki- feeding the kids, <laughs> feeding the pigs. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, Tucker. <laughs> we we feed you better food than slop for pigs, right? Depending on the day. And, and the type of leftovers. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, feeding the pig slop and eating the same slop because he couldn't afford his own food. So he decides, hey, you know, I'm going to, the slaves in my father's house are treated better than this. I'm just going to go see if my dad will take me on as a slave. So at least I could be better off than I am now. And as he's walking up the pathway, he doesn't even get a chance to fully propose his solution to his father. His father just runs up to him and hugs him and commands somebody to slaughter the fatted calf and to bring all these um, beautiful and wonderful things to his son to celebrate the fact that his son is, is there. And the Bible shows this as an example of how God treats us. You know, we, we've wandered away. We've got the filth of, of the world on us. And we think God is never going to receive me as a son. Look at me. I'm a mess. We should think that. Some of us have a hard time thinking that. That we have the filth of the world all over us. But that's who this father in the parable accepted. The son. He was just happy that his son was there. The Bible says that God is the shepherd that leaves the 99 to go and get that lost sheep. Because he loves that lost sheep. You do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And I, and I like this, this contrast here. You didn't receive the spirit of bondage for fear, but then that's contrasts with, contrasted with adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, this relational understanding here. So bondage versus adoption. Bondage, you're a slave, you're trapped. You can't get out. Adoption, you still can't get out, right? You still can't get out of that. It's not your right to unadopt yourself from that family. And you're under the rules of that household. 
similarly to a slave, but as an adopted child, you have this relational aspect of nearness to your father, how he doesn't abuse you and whip you and you're not working hard enough. Ah! Treating you like a slave, even though there are some similarities between a slave and a child. No offense, Tucker. Do we ever make you do chores? Yeah? Do we have a whip whipping you until you get it done? Did you know that sometimes people did that? Not to their kids, but a slave master, if a, sl- if a, if a master had a slave, they would take a whip and psh, psh, hit him with the whip until they got their work done. Did you know that? Do you wish that we did that to you? No? Would you be afraid of us? You wouldn't be afraid of us if we had a whip? How would you feel? Sad, yeah. <laughs> Sore. Sore, right? <laughs> you know. But the difference between us and our relationship with God as an adopted child is He doesn't treat us like that. We feel like that. We may feel like that, and that's wrong for us to feel. But here we have a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. This relational intimacy. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. We can sense it here that we're the children of God. We can sense this relational bond with God, our Father. And if children, then heirs, talking about an inheritance, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, joint heirs with Christ because we're His, his brothers and sisters now. So, so we, we, are, we have the rights to the same inheritance that Christ has the rights to. But then he, start, he ends this with something that seems to be contradictory. If indeed we suffer with him. That doesn't sound exciting. Wait a second, I thought this was supposed to be a good touchy-feely type of thing. <laughs> Having a, finally being in a good stable position where I don't have to be afraid. But he says, we know that we're children with him if we suffer with him. Because did God keep Christ from suffering? Did the Father keep Christ from suffering? No, he endured more suffering than any of us ever will. He endured more rejection than any of us ever will. And that's why Jesus says, if anyone wants to come follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And he said that before the cross ever became a Christian symbol. If you want to follow Christ, you have to expect to leave your life behind you. Because you're part of a new family now. You're adopted into a new family. You have to leave the old name that you had behind you. You're no longer, you know, if, if Tucker, if me and Mommy died, you're, what's your last name, Tucker? Cochran. Cochran. But if me and Mommy died, that would be a bad thing, right? And maybe you were adopted. Maybe, maybe, maybe my sister adopted you, Aunt Christy. Do you know what her last name is? Craven. And if she adopted you, you'd probably take on her last name. Now you'd be Tucker Craven. Wouldn't that be weird? Yeah? But you know what? That's what happens when we're adopted. We take on all of God's relational aspects. We're His now. And part of that means we are suffering along with Christ. We are like Jesus. We are given a similar will as Jesus. And suffering is God's way of making us more like Christ, making us more like Him. Because in suffering, we are given the opportunity to be purged of the filth and the depravity that has been condemned in the flesh, to get it out of you, kind of like a detox in a sense. 
Has anybody ever detoxed before? Yeah, is it any fun? <laughs> no. <laughs> Sometimes detoxing involves a lot of vomiting and shaking and, <laughs> and headaches and it's not any good. And in a way, the suffering that God gives us as a father to a child is detoxifying us from the ways of the world. It's painful and it involves a lot of suffering. So when we are suffering as children of God, it's not because God's hammer of wrath is coming down upon us. It's because he's trying to help us get rid of this filth that's, that's holding us to the earth. It's keeping our affections. So he's treating us like a father taking care of a child. Tucker, are you happy all the time at home? No, sometimes you're sad. Are you ever sad when me and mommy are disciplining you? When you're in trouble? Yeah. But that should happen because if we never disciplined you, you would never learn what's right and what's wrong, right? Yeah. <laughs> so as a father, he teaches us his ways. And part of that is through suffering. So, um, and with that, I will end that. Um, but keep this sheet of paper, look through these passages, dwell on them, and really love the fact that you have a Father in Heaven who's received you, who's gotten you, who's adopted you, and you had, you had nothing to do with Him previously, but He wanted to have something to do with you. So He came and He adopted you.